Mac Power Users, episode 417, Workflows with Manton Reese. Hello, everyone. It's David Sparks along with my pal, Katie Floyd. How are you today, Katie? I'm great, David. How are you? Fantastic. And uh, super happy to have a guest back on the show. We haven't had him here for years. Welcome back to the show, Manton Reese. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Oh, yeah. You know, Manton, if you haven't met him, is like one of the nicest guys in the whole Mac developer community. Every time I'm at some conference or something, he's just surrounded by adoring fans. Kind of like a rock star, right? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that, but thank you. <laughs> um, before we get started, though, we have business to conduct. Uh, uh, as we talked about last week, we are having the meetup again this year. It's on March 7th in Chicago. So if you're in the Midwest somewhere on March 7th, we would love to have you. Uh, we are super happy to have MacPaw back and sponsoring it this year. So uh, thanks to MacPaw and all their great apps like Setup and Clean My Mac and all the stuff they make because they are paying for your grub, gang. So make sure uh, to give them some love. And uh, we hope to see you. We're going to have a link in the show notes. And uh, once again, that's the evening of March 7th. Yeah, there'll be an Eventbrite the show notes. Um, you you don't have to. The tickets are free because thanks to Mac Paul's kind sponsorship. Uh, but we are asking you to have a ticket because I, I think we've we've probably got several dozen people who have already registered. We are, our venue can accommodate somewhere between 75 and 100. Uh, I don't know that we'll top out at that. But just to make sure, we, we are asking everyone who's coming to have a ticket. But I, I think it's going to be a great event again. It was my my favorite thing of our Chicago trip that we did last year. Yeah. And last year we did have people that wanted to go that couldn't get tickets. They they do sell out. So please get your tickets as soon as you can. Um, and we're not doing a show. We're not going to do a live show. We're actually, it's just a meetup. And I, I always prefer it that way. So I can, rather than sit at a microphone and, you know, blah, 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 we can just talk and meet everybody. And the nice thing about the Mac Power Users is that the people that listen to our show are just super smart and it's, it's really awesome to, to get to meet everybody and lots of new friendships are made and it's just a good time. So we will see you on March 7, but we're back to the show today and uh, happy to have back uh, Manton Reese. Manton, so how are you doing? It's been several years since we had you on Mac power users. It has been several. I checked and it was, it was almost four years ago. I think it was 2014 that I was on. And so everything has changed. Everything has changed since then. <laughs> I, I bet feel it like has. in some ways everything is the same, but in, in the middle of that, I quit my job, my day job. And so, yeah. Yeah. You, you, you turn things upside down a little bit. And, um, and for those who don't know Manton, he is, uh, like I said, he's a developer, real smart guy, does a lot of web-based stuff. We're going to talk about uh, some of his projects as we get through the show, but uh, Manton's also a nerd and he, uh, uses his Apple technology to get his work done every day. In addition to being a developer, he's also a business owner these days. So uh, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about in the outline about how you pull that off um, coming from somebody that, you know, was working for the man before. But I guess before we get started with anything, uh, what kind of gear are you using these days? So my main computer every day is the MacBook Pro 13-inch Retina 2014, mid-2014. Yeah, maybe maybe I said that in the wrong order, but that, that's the computer. So maybe that hasn't changed since the last since the last time we had you on. If it was 2014, so it it sort of hasn't, sort of hadn't. I had the same basic computer, but it is a new computer because 
I, when I quit my job, one of the first things I did was I'm going to start my own you know, company, walk into the Apple store with my fancy new business credit card and, you know, buy a new, buy a new laptop. That's just mine. And that wasn't provided uh, by my work. And so price is no object. Give me the best yeah. you have, my good man. Give me the best. And they said, the best is fourth. And I said, never mind. Give me the best in my budget, like the the cheapest, maybe with a little upgrades. And so I did. I walked out of that computer with basically the same computer that I've been using. Uh, And, you know, it's held up really well. To be honest, I would probably use this computer forever if I could just upgrade the, you know, get a new MacBook. But that's like a little faster, a little better bigger hard drive, a little more memory. And it's starting to, it's starting to get a little sluggish, but at the same time I hear everybody, you know, some people love the new touch bar MacBook pro. Some people hate the keyboard. Some people love it. And so I think I'm going to keep using this computer as long as I possibly can. Yeah. You know, that's, it's funny because we've heard that from a lot of guests and we hear it from even more listeners. And honestly, in the first time of the nearly, uh, well, I guess it's eight years now we've been making this show, or nine years. Uh, I've never had a situation where listeners are saying, I want to get a new Mac, but I'm afraid of the current one shipping, or I'm not so sure about what they're making now, which is really a, it's really quite an achievement for Apple, you know? Yeah, and I have a feeling most people that walk out of the Apple store with a brand new MacBook Pro love it, but, you know, the people that don't like it, I really don't like it. And so you hear from those people a lot more too, but it's enough to make me hesitate, you know. And, and you're in our fiddly little community of developers and power users that, that really care passionately about this stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I did an, uh, you know, Jason celebrated year does that six uh, colors report card. And I, uh, my contribution was, I think that, you know, last year was the year we discovered that Apple makes bad keyboards and their laptops. I mean, I, I don't know the numbers. I haven't seen them, but just based on all of the feedback we get on our show and what you read, there's a lot of people unhappy with that keyboard. Yeah. And I don't know if I would like the keyboard or not. I've just kind of played with a little bit in the Apple store. Uh, At some point I'm going to have to upgrade and I'll probably get used to the keyboard pretty quickly. The, the the big mistake I made, like in hindsight, was again like price is no like price was <laughs> an issue, and I ended up only getting. And this will shock people that I've been using this computer for almost three years, doing Xcode and development, all this stuff with only eight gigabytes of RAM. It's really not enough. But it was like, I, yeah, I had that moment of like, ah, I don't really want to spend like a, you know, the price was already getting up. I didn't want to spend any more. That was a little bit of a regret. So certainly if I bought a new MacBook Pro today, I would fix that. I would have more hard drive space, but I've been able to get by somehow. You know, and the other thing is, I feel like people don't give the iMac enough credit. A lot of people uh, would get off would be better off with a you know a similarly priced iMac with a 27 inch screen over a laptop. I was just talking to a friend last night who is, has got to buy a new computer. You know his, the old one he's using an old Mac Pro. It's uh, well it's JF who's a guest on our show once in a while. JF preset and he uh, he's he's weighing his options, but he said, "Well, I have a laptop currently, and I go see my parents two or three weeks a year." And if I, you know, if I don't have a laptop, I can't do video editing when I'm on the road. And the question to me was, do you want to have that small screen all year 
with the benefit of being able to use it at your parents' house two or three weeks a year. And I think for a lot of people, if you if you break that down, um, you can, for the same money, often get a better computer with an iMac if you're willing to leave it at your desk. Right. This is interesting because I have definitely gone to laptop only. And like the kind of transition that I've made over the years is back in the old days, I had a, you know, a Power Mac or a Mac Pro with like two cinema displays or external monitors of some kind. And I'd have, you know, web browser and chat on one side and coding or something on the other side writing. And but then I was like, oh, I was kind of moving back and forth between the two. So I consolidate to one big display. And then eventually I just consolidate to the laptop only. And what I like about it, even though, again, people will be shocked that I use a 13 inch monitor and do development and, and all this sort of thing on it. What I like about it is I like working at coffee shops. I like working out of the house. Uh, last year, I worked at a co-working place quite a bit. And no matter where I am, it's the same screen size. I don't have to get used to a smaller screen. So I'm not quite as productive on a small screen as a big one, but I'm equally productive everywhere I go, which kind of makes up uh, for the, the the difference, if that makes sense. So I don't have to adjust. I'm always as productive as I'm going to be if I'm at the coffee shop, if I'm at my home office, it doesn't matter. Well, that makes sense. If you're on the road a lot, then the IMAX really out of the question. But but Katie, now she's gone full Al Gore. She's got like six of those big Apple oh. displays. No, 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 no. Right? I have not. I, I do have a, a 2016 MacBook Pro. Um, and then I've got a, I want to say it's a 24-inch Dell 4K display that I ended up buying just because I resigned myself that I was not going to buy that ugly, expensive LG display that Apple made. And I, I wanted a high-def display, but I, I didn't want to spend the money on that particular display and wait and see what Apple had come up with. So, uh, you know, it's not a bad setup. I, I will tell you that this is the first MacBook that I've... That, that I, I, actually, I will tell you this is the first computer that I've had in a long time that I have not been happier with than I was with the machine that I had before it. But it's not a bad machine. It's just, uh, you know, it... it it hasn't made me all warm and fuzzy like like all my past computers. So I, I am really looking hard at not that I'm looking to get rid of it anytime soon, but the next time I come to upgrade and the next, you know, two or three years, whenever that may be, um, I'm probably going to be looking at maybe putting a 27 inch iMac on my desk and either turning this down as just a, a downstairs portable laptop to use for kicking around with or, or maybe even getting a little MacBook adorable. We'll see. Yeah, you know, a- Apple has had. You know, Apple has had problems in the past. I remember reading about one of the prior Macs years ago that they they put the hard drive next to the speaker magnet. So if you turned up the volume high enough, you would erase your hard drive. You know, so I mean, this isn't the first time Apple's had something where people are are um, hesitant. And I I kind of have a feeling that in the next year or two, if you can make that 2014 hold out, you may have better options. I think it'll last. I think I'm, I think I have another year in this thing. I used to upgrade like every two years and this one is stretching on almost three. I think it'll last another year. Like I said, it feels a little more sluggish, sluggish lately. I don't know why that is. I don't really want to point blame in any apps or high Sierra or anything like that, but it, it just feels like it's been dragging lately and I'm hoping that is a temporary thing and it'll, it'll last a little bit longer. Have you joined the iPad revolution? I mean, sort of. I did buy the iPad Pro, the original iPad Pro, 
uh, the, on the big launch one? day, the big one, the huge yeah. one with the smart keyboard and the pencil. And the pencil was the thing that just really sold me on it. I loved the idea of just being able to sit anywhere and like sketch or doodle on something. And I used it a lot and I still use it. I don't use it quite as much as I, I used to. I used to be really big on the iPad. I would like my iPhone apps. I want to make sure they were great on the iPad. And I still, of course, want that to be the case, but I don't use it quite as much. And I'm not sure if that's like the larger phones are starting to take some of that use away, but I do love the iPad pro. I love the keyboard, which is a weird thing to say when we just started complaining about keyboards, but like for the iPad itself, like as a device, the keyboard was kind of a game changer, but I don't use it. I don't use it every day. You know, Are you just talking about it. the glass keyboard or the cover keyboard? The smart, yeah, keyboard. the smart cover one. Yeah. Just, just cause it's all con- it's so convenient. And like in the past when I've had iPads and I've had, you know, every other model or so since the very beginning, I felt like it wasn't as integrated as convenient. Um, third party keyboards never, at least you're going more years back when I would use uh, the earlier iPads. They didn't really click the same way. Yeah, I've got friends who change keyboards for their iPads like monthly. They've got so many different, <laughs> key, you know, they they want to. But for me, I, I've always been, I call myself keyboard agnostic. I can type on just about anything. And so the new MacBook Pro, no problem. The iPad smart cover, no problem. Or smart keyboard, I always mix those terms up. Smart keyboard, also no problem. I just type on The one thing I had with my smart keyboard was occasionally it doesn't, for some reason, doesn't work. It's like connected and it doesn't work. And if I just lift it off the magnet and then drop it back on, it will work. Um, we, we had a guest on the show about a year ago. I think it was, um, who I think it was Clayton Morris who had that. And he said if he ran alcohol or along the contacts every three or four months, that would solve that problem. And uh, I just haven't got around to doing that yet. Now I just disconnect it and reconnect it every time that happens. <laughs> yeah, I love the idea. Of, like I used to do a lot of writing and like writing blog posts and, and kind of drafts and just putting some thoughts down on the iPad. And a lot of that has switched to the iPhone for me. But I do love the idea of iOS of just being focused and just having we can have multiple apps and multitasking and everything now, but like being able to focus, fire up Ulysses, whatever your app is, and sit in a nice place away from like the day-to-day work stuff on your Mac. So I've got a little away from that with the iPad. A lot of that's shifted more to the iPhone, but I still love iOS. No complaints for that. I just don't use it full time. Which iPhone are you using these days? I am using the iPhone X, the iPhone 10, and I got it on launch day. I pretty much love it. I, I switched from the iPhone SE and because I really resisted the large iPhones for a long time. I just thought, oh, they're too big. I loved the way the SE, you know, felt in your hand and just like the weight of it and the size. And I still love, I still think it's really one of the best designs Apple has ever come up with. It's perfect, but you know, it it definitely gets updated every couple of years. Hopefully they have actually haven't refreshed it yet. I expect they will. Yeah. Yeah, I hope they will in the next month or two, because I know a lot of people still love it. (laughs) That's the rumor. We'll see. Yeah, I hope so. It makes sense. I mean, that, that's, I really think the people that have the SE love it and they will buy a new one um, to replace it. But I just, yeah, I decided to make the jump to the iPhone 10, especially after seeing the advances in the, the cameras, like on the, the 7 Plus. And I, I really wanted the best camera 
And that camera lagging a full two years behind started to be kind of annoying. Um, so I wanted the best camera and the huge screen on the iPhone uh, X comes along. And I'm sorry, I say X. Uh, it comes along with the uh, with getting the best camera and everything else. But I, I do love it. And I do, like I said, I do a lot of writing on it now, which is kind of surprising maybe. But like if, uh, I'm, if I have something I need to take notes on or you know, work on a blog post or longer text, I find that it's pretty convenient to do jot things down and even do like editing and longer writing on it. And so, uh, yeah, I, great, great phone. Love it. Hey, okay. So I just want to pick up on a couple of those points. First of all, the, the X versus 10 thing, I totally get, we had some normal friends over by normal. I mean, people that aren't super nerds like me and, uh, and she kept referring it to the iPhone X and I said, you know, it's really iPhone 10. And she says, well, yeah, you know, it's really got an X after the name. <laughs> she says, why didn't they put it number 10 there then? And I said, <laughs> I, I really, I like calling it the X. I feel like it should be called the X. But I, yeah, I feel like I have to apologize when I talk with other tech folks who know it's called the 10, that I'm saying it the quote unquote incorrect way. But I, I feel like calling it the 10 introduces a lot of brand confusion because you have the eight and then you have the 10 and then next year you're going to have the nine, the 11, 10 plus, I, who knows? Like it's really confusing and I think they should have just called the X and uh, I think that would have eliminated uh, a lot of the problems when you go, again, you walk in the Apple store, you want to get something it's strange that there's a brand new phone called the eight that is literally brand new and it's at a great iPhone, but it feels not as new because there's something called the 10 that's sitting right next to it. Yeah. And my, my friend, like in one sentence cut me down to like five inches and I was just thinking, thanks Apple, you know, thanks for doing that to me. (laughs) Right. Now, when you say you write on your iPhone, you just got done telling me that you're using the big keyboard and you're like, you know, pounding away on the iPad pro. Uh, this is for my own benefit. How are you getting a lot of writing done with that little keyboard? Well, slowly, slowly, but I, I feel like I'm, <laughs> deliberate words. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's kind of like kind of what I said about like, I'm not quite as productive on a 13 inch screen as a 27 inch screen, but the productivity, you know, loss is made up for the fact that I can use my MacBook at Starbucks or anywhere else. And it's, I feel kind of the same way with the, the iPhone. Of course, I can type like extremely slow and error prone compared to a keyboard. I can type very fast and accurate on a, on a real keyboard. But the fact that I have the iPhone X everywhere and I can, like I'm on the treadmill, I can type something that I'm thinking about or I'm in another room or I'm out shopping, you know, the fact that it is everywhere, I found that I use it more and more and of course, I use my old iPhone all the time, too. But the bigger screen just makes that a little easier. I don't think I'm faster at typing on the new iPhone as any previous iPhone. But the bigger screen, just being able to see more text, be able to kind of swipe through and edit things. I don't know. I found it. I found it works. Yeah, I've been experimenting lately with the Google keyboard on the iPhone and the swipe typing. And I kind of like it. But I, I definitely cannot keep up with my typing speed on an iPad. Yeah, no, I can't either. What app are you doing your typing in? I'm I'm on Ulysses now for all platforms, and I, I've gone to kind of back and forth between different apps. But I use that. And I sync with Dropbox, and so like all my notes and drafts and everything is in Dropbox. I got like all the thousands of these little little note files, and I just sync it 
between all the platforms, but I used Ulysses primarily on all the platforms. And then because it's on Dropbox, if I have to use another app, of course I can, but that's the app I use most of the time. I, it fits really well on iOS. I think the design is, is really well done. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Fujitsu, makers of the great ScanSnap line of scanners. You can learn more about the Fujitsu ScanSnap at budurl.me slash SSMPU. That stands for ScanSnap MPU. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you have heard David and I extol the virtues of the Fujitsu ScanSnap scanner. In fact, I'm looking at one on my desk here. What makes ScanSnap so great is the combination of amazing software and first-class hardware. Let's start with their premier scanner, the iX500. This is a full duplex 50-sheet feeder scanner that will connect to your computer either wirelessly or with USB 3.0. This scanner will scan 25 pages per minute, either to your computer or directly to mobile devices. You can scan in PDF or JPEG. And it has an enhanced paper feeding system that basically will make your misfeeds a thing of the past. They use enhanced roller separation technology to minimize your jams. If you have a lot of documents to power through, you want the iX500 on your desk. If you're looking for something a little more portable, you may want to check out the S1300i. That scanner will do 12 pages per minute, double-sided scanning on the go. You can fit it in a drawer or stick it in your briefcase. Or for the ultimate in portability, check out the iX100. This will scan a page at 300 DPI in 5.2 seconds and will fit in a glove box, briefcase, or backpack. It weighs only 14 ounces and can be USB powered. But the thing that makes these Fujitsu line of scanners so great is the amazing Fujitsu software. They have dual scan capability that will scan small documents at the same time. You can also scan documents larger than legal size and then automatically stitch them together using the Fujitsu software. Their scanner includes OCR software, and they can scan to many cloud services, including Dropbox, Evernote, Google Drive, and more. You can set up profiles for single scans, batch scans, photo scans, just about anything you want to do, and you can use their custom software to organize business cards and receipts. You can learn more about this amazing line of scanners at budurl.me SSMPU, and thanks Fujitsu for your kind support of the show. Matt, and, uh, before we continue, I uh, I just want to follow up on that point about Ulysses. Um, how are you? You said you have thousands of notes. How are you organizing them? So I'm not organizing them much. I just, you know, if I need to write something new, I just start writing a new document. And by default, it just goes in this notes folder on Dropbox. And then over time, I move them into year folders. But that's actually about all the organization I do. And so that so I, I that cuts down on just having this huge list, but it's still a huge list. And I don't currently automate it. I really should have something that goes and like files them away into the folders for me. Uh, you know, like just after like, let's say I haven't touched the document in two months, it files it away for me. I don't currently do that. I just kind of manually throw them all into a year folder to keep them kind of organized. So not a lot of organization, but the the key thing for me is, you know, sorting reverse chronologically, you know, the new stuff that I'm working on is at the top, be able to just go quickly into it. Um, and then I, I'm also writing a book, which is kind of stored kind of separately in nested folders and chapters, and it's all marked down. And so that's a little more organized because it needs to be, because it's a structure of like a much larger, you know, piece of writing. But for like notes and blog posts and stuff, I just really just throw it all in there. And then later, I kind of organize it a little bit of subfolders just so I don't have one folder that has, you know, an enormous amount of files in it. 
Are you naming your notes a specific way or breaking them up a specific way if you're only organizing them by date that makes them easier for search purposes then? Actually, no. I just let the app, you know, a few of, a few of these apps, like Ulysses and there's some other apps that are similar. They, they just name the file with like the first part of the note. And that's enough for me. Uh, every once in a while, I need to name it something unique. But for the most part, if I'm just writing some notes down or a, like a draft of a blog post or something like that, I just let it name the file whatever it wants. And I'm good. And you've never had a problem finding anything. So who cares? I wouldn't say never, but it, for the most part, it's okay. You know, it's it's a search is not as fast as it could be once you accumulate that many documents. But I, I don't think I've ever felt like I couldn't find something that I needed to find. So you know, you're a you're a developer, but you're also you know a user. And since we last talked, the iOS really has emerged as a usable operating system for a lot of productivity work. Um, how do you balance between Mac and iOS? Uh, with the various hardware and software you use? So I'm mostly really on the Mac now that I'm, I've kind of shifted and I haven't done a lot of like real work on the iPad lately. I'm mostly on the Mac all the time. And then on the, the iPhone and the iPad, it's, it's usually things like, it's text usually. It's like writing or web-related things. It's not like the core work that I do, so it's not coding usually. Occasionally, I'll be in a place where I, I have to fix. I have to upload a podcast, or I have to, you know, fix some issue on a server or something like that. And in that case, like I've had no problem really. I mean, there, there's enough really high-quality apps on iOS, like Transmit from Panic. Unfortunately, they decided that not going to be working on the app anymore, but as long as the current version keeps working for a couple of years, I'm good. Apps like that, like I don't use every day, but if I need to upload a file or something like that, I know I have those on my phone. I have those on my iPad. And um, so I feel like I can do a lot, but I don't do the day-to-day like coding and that sort of thing on iOS. Yeah. Cause you're an, you're an Xcode mainly, aren't you? Or, or are you? Yep. I'm mostly in Xcode and then um, I do web development too, which I could do more of the web development on the iPad. But because I'm at my Mac most of the time, I, I just choose to use my Mac with BB Edit, which is just kind of my default workflow. But yeah, Xcode, unfortunately, is not on iOS. I think eventually it will be. People always ask and wonder, like, you know, is the next WWDC Apple's going to announce some Xcode Lite, some kind of version for the, the iPad? I think we'll see that eventually, but maybe it's still a ways off. Yeah, we've been hearing that now for like five years. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's going to be. This is the year. Yeah, and the, the big thing you can't do with the iPad is develop for the iPad right now. Right. And I, I think they need to solve that at some point because it's a, it's really a kind of a, I mean, it's not a major problem, but it's a, it's a, it would complete the story for the iPad if you could do really everything you need to do, including build apps for the platform itself on that device. Is it even possible, though, when you think about the amount of resources Xcode uses, just the number of files it installs on your drive when you install it and the amount of RAM it chews through? Um, you were saying how eight gigabytes isn't enough for you. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, if, it's, if we're even at a point where realistically Xcode could exist on the iPad, but... It would definitely have to be a slimmed down version of Xcode. It couldn't be like, they're not going to just take Xcode on the Mac and port it. Like that's completely not going to happen. That's just, that would be too daunting of a task and it would, yeah, it'd be too much. You you need more of the Mac level horsepower, I think. But 
uh, I think a slimmed down version, similar to, you know, they have Swift Playgrounds. They've experimented with like, and third parties have also experimented with development tools and scripting languages that you can kind of work on the, on the iPad. I think a slimmed down version that would allow people to kind of get started building an app and then either ship it or move it to the, like the full version of Xcode. I could see something like that working. If that happens, is it going to be a hallelujah moment for you? I mean, are you going to be, are you going to be super happy or is it going to not change much? I'm going to, I'm going to be happy for the platform and I'm going to be happy for all the like developers just that are coming up, just learning how to code right now, because I think it will be really powerful. You know, if you think about schools that have iPads, uh, like being able to expose those people to like full development tools, I think is really exciting for me personally. It's not super exciting because I'm okay with using my Mac for Xcode, but I think it would be really powerful for the platform and you know, just enabling more people to, to build apps. Now, I, you know, a, a recurring topic on our show unintentionally, but we always talk about it because it seems like everybody's got a different answer is, is dealing with photos. I know you got the new, the new phone to get the better camera. Um, what are you doing for photo management? So the, this answer is similar to what I do with, with my notes, which is they're all on Dropbox and I don't do that much. I, okay. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I, I really like having all my photos on Dropbox, and I know that's not a popular opinion anymore, but Dropbox is so transparent, and I feel like the photos are probably like in the top one or two most important types of files that I have, you know, family photos and you know old family videos and different things like that. Like, I, those are priceless, and I want them in some system that syncs that I never have to worry that there's going to be some glitch and like, I don't know how to get access to my photos. And I feel like iCloud is still really kind of opaque and really kind of difficult to troubleshoot if things go wrong. So all my photos are in Dropbox, super happy with, with that. They import automatically. I do, I do similar thing. I organize them by year and, and, and month. Um, and they're just there. And that's, that actually works surprisingly well. I, I don't, need that much more. And I have other copies of them. And I, I try to like sync up a copy like Google photos and stuff like that. So I have extra copies, but the primary, I consider Dropbox the primary storage for my photos. So are you just importing them through the Dropbox app on your phone? How do you make sure that everything actually gets there? Is it the, you only take them on your phone and, and that's how they're stored? I just, uh, well, 95% I take on my phone these days. Like we have a nicer camera, but it's, we don't use it that often. And when we do, I just import them like just as I would to, you know, iPhone or the photos app. Uh, But yeah, for the most part, I just, you let the Dropbox app import them all for me. And uh, the, the full version is, is saved up on Dropbox. And then once you've got them up in Dropbox, are you doing any kind of organization, you know, renaming them or or anything like that? Your your phone probably has got data and metadata and dates and those types of things. Are you just keeping them when they're up there named whatever their default name is? Are you doing anything with them? I'm just letting, I'm letting, I'm keeping them. Yeah. It's a really low tech solution. I, I just let them be whatever they are. I just, all that I really care about is being able to have them, you know, like years and months, like breaking that down and having them all like completely available on all my devices and from different apps. Like that's where, uh, that's the kind of the level of success <laughs> that I'll, I'll accept. So view 
viewing and then um, going in and digging into those photos, are you doing that through just the Dropbox interface, through the Finder? Are there any kind of photo browsers that are specifically designed for this? There probably are. I've gone through and used a, a, a few different things um, over over the years, including I used to have a Mac app uh, called Clipstart that was for managing videos. And I adapted that to work with photos as well. And it allowed you to tag photos and organize them and, and that sort of thing. I don't maintain that app anymore, really, unfortunately, um, because it was actually a really good fit for exactly what you're saying, where you have like a folder and subfolders and like you have all these 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 photos and you want to kind of uh, have search and um, tags and everything applied to them. But I don't really maintain that app anymore. And so I don't actively use it anymore. You know, Matt, and when you say that you're alone uh, storing photos on Dropbox, you're not. I mean, there's a lot of people that do it that way. But I have to admit, I don't really understand it because I feel like, you know, I get that you want the Dropbox backup, but it's so convenient to have your photos stored by Apple with the, you know, they've this photos ecosystem they've built out throughout the the platform. I don't know why you don't do both. So I might actually do both. I, I'm trying to look and see if I, I, I can't rem, I can never remember if I have iPhoto, uh, if I have iCloud photo library enabled on different devices. I can never keep track just because I feel like Dropbox is the primary storage, but I have other copies and my wife uses the photos app and so it's a little bit of a mix. It's a little bit of jumbled, to be honest. You know, people are probably scratching their head listening to this. It's a little bit kind of in transition, but like that core kind of belief that all my photos need to be completely accessible in something that's obvious, like a hard drive that's synced to the cloud, that kind of remains as other things kind of change. And I understand. I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I back up my photos in a lot of ways <laughs> and several of them are plain just photos. And, you know, like you said, it's very important data, but uh, photos has just come so far and it's so convenient to have them in there. And it does some pretty nice things these days with your photos. And so I, I just feel like, if, if you want the Dropbox backup, I, I have this argument all the time with people in email, so I'm going to have to have it on the show. It's just I feel like go ahead and save them in Dropbox, but why don't you go ahead and take advantage of the free thing Apple has too? You don't even have to pay for the storage if you don't want. You know, just do it on your Mac or whatever. But the um, but it's pretty good, I, I think. Yeah, I probably need to do a little more. I, I probably need to treat them both as equally important instead of like Dropbox is the most important thing. And then like, you know, iCloud's kind of an afterthought or Google photos is kind of like an afterthought, but it's so, so far it's been okay. Just cause the, the peace of mind, like I never have to worry, but that's my main concern is just like knowing where all my photos are and be able to access them from multiple devices. Um, as long as that's taken care of and I have backups that I have, haven't had the time to really explore like the next step. I just had to go in an Apple store recently for, uh, we had a, a, an issue with one of my, my daughter's computer and, um, brought it in. And it seems like every time I go there, there's somebody at the end of the genius bar in tears over their photos being lost. You know, I mean, it's like, I, I feel like the, the Apple geniuses should get like combat pay for telling people that you lost all your photos. Um, and I asked the guy afterwards, I said, how often does that happen? And he says a lot less often since you know we have photos now because most people you just use photos but you know and my my gripe with that is why don't you give them a bigger storage allotment you know, don't make people pay 
but that that's a whole nother conversation. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole today, but, but they, they should make it even like when you spend a thousand dollars for a phone, they should give you enough storage that you don't have to worry about it. I completely agree. And I think you're right. It has come a long way. And some of my thinking is maybe like two years back, but then again, like you said, I know people that have the heartbreak of losing all, you know, like multiple weeks of photos or actually this happened to my daughter. She, uh, was in a, not, in Europe for a week or two on a trip, took all these photos and had forgot. I think she had forgotten to like enable photo stream or like a photo library or something. And I'm forgetting the details now, but she essentially lost every photo from that two weeks that wasn't uploaded to the blog that she was writing and posting photos to. So she has like the best photos from the two weeks, but not all the photos. So yeah, it's just, it's, really hard when, when that, that kind of thing happens and there's no backup. Well, I want to talk a little about, about um, how you're getting information these days. We did an entire show, I think it was last episode, right, David, about um, consuming content. But I understand that you're still a big reader user. Are you, are you still a big blog and RSS person? Absolutely. Bigger than ever. <laughs> Bigger okay. than ever. So uh, t- yeah. tell me about that. Bigger than ever. Has, have your habits changed recently? Where, where are you getting your news and information these days? So I don't think, um, it's not really that my habits have changed. It's just that I've like highlighted all the blog aspects and kind of like just worked all the blog stuff more into my workflow because like I'm working on micro.blog, which is very much about blogging and encouraging people to blog. So for a long time, I've used RSS and I use reader on the Mac and iOS and I sync it right now with feed Wrangler. I also have a feed bin. Uh, account, which I really like. There's some really good work being done on Feedbin right now. And so I read blogs all the time. I try to blog as much as I can. And that's still the combination of like subscribing to specific blogs and being able to kind of keep up to date with what people are doing. And then the the timeline in micro.blog of microblog short posts. um, That's where I get, you know, 90 some odd percent uh, of the news and, and what people are writing about. And so are you taking information from multiple sources and then posting those on micro.blog or are you, and we're going to have a whole section. We're going to talk a lot about micro.blog, but I'm just curious that you've said you're, you're doing more, more reading from blogs and, and RSS feeds than, than ever now. So does that mean you're getting, you know, less of your news from other sources like Twitter or Facebook or, or social media and, and have gone back to kind of an RSS renaissance or yeah, I never really left the the RSS world. I mean, I, I just certainly used Twitter. I was big on Twitter early on. And I, I think f- a few years ago when I was on, we talked a lot about Twitter and kind of the changes that the platform was going through at the time. I don't really read anything on Twitter anymore. Um, I have an account that, that cross posts things um, like bigger essays that I write on my blog to Twitter, but I don't follow anyone on Twitter. I don't read. I mean, I click through on things that people link to, but for the most part, I've kind of detached myself from the Twitter world and Facebook is similar. I don't check it very often. So yeah, RSS blogs are the biggest way that I keep up with things. And then, you know, we can get in more into micro.blog, but like that timeline of micro.blog is kind of like a Twitter replacement is really interesting and like uh, fills in some of the, the missing pieces. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by OnePassword.com. Head over to OnePassword.com slash MPU in all caps to get 20% off. 
1Password is the excellent password manager that everybody should have. Using 1Password, you can make strong, reliable passwords and get access to them very easily with their application. That's on the Mac, the iPad, the iPhone, Android, Windows, and it seems like just about everywhere else. But there's a lot of depth to 1Password, and one of the features I'd like to talk about today is not managing your password, but managing your secure notes. Recently, someone asked me to get the passport numbers for my wife and my kids and I. Now, what would you do if someone asked you for those passport numbers for all of your family? Normally, you'd have to go dig out the passports wherever they are in your house, maybe they're in your safe, and then find the numbers, write them down, and do all that nonsense. But not me. I had written the numbers down of the passports inside the secure notes in 1Password, so I was able to quickly access them and give them to them. In fact, the person who was asking me for the numbers didn't believe how quickly I responded. All of this is possible because of the secure note feature in 1Password. Secure notes are just what they sound like, a series of notes kept securely in your 1Password database. Someone gets access to your iPhone, iPad, or Mac, they're not going to get access to your secure notes. Because they're kept in that 1Password database, the bad guy would have to break through a separate wall to get access to them. I love that. Just think about the stuff you've stored in Apple Notes or the things that you refuse to store in Apple Notes because you're afraid of the security. All of that stuff can go into the 1Password Secure Notes database. As I'm looking at my database right now, I have 238 notes of secure notes. They include things like the passport numbers and medical information or the Wi-Fi password for a friend. All that stuff is quickly and securely stored, and I've got it with me at all times if I need it. This isn't the main feature of 1Password, but it's just one of the many additional features you get when you sign up for it. Either way, I use the 1Password Secure Notes every day, and if you've got 1Password or thinking about it, you should use them too. You can learn a lot more over at onepasswordcom MPU. Now make that in all caps, and you'll get 20% off your subscription. Once again, onepasswordcom MPU in all caps, and thank you, 1Password, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. Okay, Mountain, uh, we've been kind of dancing around this idea of micro.blog without explaining what it is. Uh, so um, let's tell everybody, <laughs> micro.blog is something that you are building, uh, and uh, tell us about it. Sure. So micro.blog is uh, it's a couple of things. It's a new social network. It's a new blogging platform. And essentially, you know, it's kind of like Twitter and there's a timeline. You can follow people. Uh, you can reply to posts, but it's also focused around blogs and owning your own content and being able to post like when you post to the service, you're posting to your own blog at your own domain name, potentially. So uh, that blogging is like the, the foundation of the service. And of course, it has a dot blog in the name. So that that kind of shouldn't be a huge surprise, but certainly like RSS and blogging. Uh, the, the core idea with micro.blog or one of the core ideas is getting people to think more about posting to their own site and having control over their own content. And so blogs just are a natural fit for that. So when I post, uh, so I, I supported you on, on Kickstarter. I know you initially started this as a, as a Kickstarter uh, backing. If, if I, but, but I'll tell you candidly, I have not really dug into micro.blog. So Educate me a little bit and, and our, our users and tell me if I, if I sign up for micro.blog, 
what is it that I get? And then is it, it's more than just another social network. It's, it's, it's not just a Twitter clone. And I think that's where other services like app.net failed. Um, What can I do on micro.blog? Can I write entire blog posts and entire articles? Am I limited to 140 characters? You know, what, what can I do on a, on micro.blog or, and do I even have to do it on micro.blog or can I have it on my own site? Right. Yes. Yeah, you can. So you're not limited exactly. The the idea is to, so if you kind of think about how something like Twitter works, of course, you post to Twitter and you have twitter.com slash your name slash, you know, whatever the the post uh, status ID is, your content is there on Twitter and it's kind of it's on their platform. It's a closed platform. With micro.blog, the idea is you post to your own site. So when you want to post to the timeline in micro.blog, instead of something that's just exists on micro.blog, it exists at your own blog. And that could be like, like we give everybody like your name.micro.blog is like a, as like a site name, but you can have your own domain name. And when you have your own domain name, you kind of have ownership of the thing. Because like if you're, if you post on Twitter, if you post a tweet or a Facebook post, if you decide to go to another platform or you want to move your content away, you you can't because you're at twitter.com slash your name, something, something, right? You're dependent on Twitter. And if you post to your own site at your own domain name, then you can do whatever you want. You can switch to a different hosting platform. You can make changes and the URLs stay the same. Nothing breaks. And with, so with micro.blog, it is a social network. You can follow people. There is a timeline. But this key idea of since you're posting to your own site, there's a lot of flexibility that comes with that. And so we can host a site for you. It's a whole blog uh, publishing platform, um, hosting platform. So we can take care of everything for you. You don't have to worry about it. But also, if you just want to go use WordPress or something like that, you can still participate in micro.blog. People can still follow you, still reply to your posts, even though you're using a completely separate system. So it kind of kind of decouples, it kind of separates this idea of the social network being where everything lives to more of the idea that how the web really is supposed to work, which is people post to their own site and it's a, that all the sites are connected and can, can reply to each other and you can follow other people and it's not all in one domain name. It's not all on one network. It can be spread out and there's a lot of flexibility with that. Democratizing social media in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's a really a lot of advantages that, that that come from this. And of course, yeah, the biggest is just encouraging people to just post to their own site. Because when you post to your own site, one of the things you get is you get you feel a little more ownership in something a little more thoughtful sometimes when you're when you're posting. But it's also like the idea that stuff you're writing about, maybe you want to keep it for years and decades. And so it can outlive any like service or any kind of whatever the latest fad is. And so that that's one of the biggest differences when we talk about like app.net is app.net. I really loved, I thought they had a lot of things uh, going for them. They got a lot right, but at the end of the day, it was just another site that when, unfortunately, like when it shut down, you know, you know all the, the content went away with it. Whereas if you post your own site, that's not the case. Well, also, you know, it's, when you started this, I just remember thinking, Wow, what what guts? Because you know, you're not just writing software at this point; you're managing a lot of data. I mean, the more users that come on, you know, the bigger thing this becomes. Um, how did you plan for that? 
Yeah, it's it's a very big project. Uh, you're right. It's very it's a little daunting when you think about like the beginning. Like, oh, we're going to start a new social network. We're going to have all these users and blog publishing, and it's it's a little bit daunting and in scope. But the way I tackle is really just like one thing at a time. So like planning and prototyping, building and launching the Kickstarter was a big part of it. Uh, thanks for supporting that. And there's a lot of people like, like what you said, just like back to Kickstarter seemed interesting, but haven't like been totally active or, or used it. And that's fine. I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. And we're here when everyone's ready to to join up. If you have an account still and you want to try it out, you know, we'll be ready. And we're just kind of been slowly growing over this last year as we rolled it out to Kickstarter people and then, and then everybody. Um, but it is, it is a big project and it could get, um, you know, to be successful, it has to get uh, even bigger than it is now. But yeah, one kind of one step at a time and being real deliberate about how we roll things out. So not trying to do everything at once, but trying to make the product better, like on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, so for our listeners, I mean, we've got a lot of, pe- a lot of people seeing the show that aren't interested in starting a big, you know, a big time blog. You know, they don't want to have a commitment of a blog. Uh, but, you know, they may be interested in micro.blog. What are some good uses for people like that? Sure. So like, I kind of glossed over like the short and long posts, but you can use it as a full blogging platform. You can have long posts with titles, or you can have these short posts that just, they look just like tweets, right? They're under 280 characters. You can post a photo. Uh, I find that like when people are getting started, there are a few things that people try and, you know, having like photos there is a big use case. Uh, a lot of people have been kind of frustrated with Instagram lately, the way there's a lot more ads, the way that the timeline is kind of all out of order now. So uh, a lot of people want instead, you know, when we talk about photos and how you know priceless and important they are, put those on your own site instead. So I see a lot of people posting really great photos and we try to encourage that in the apps. Like you can post photos from the Mac app, the web, the iPhone and the iPhone that, you know, you can, um, you know, post some kind of square like Instagram, it has filters. So you can kind of do some effects, uh, on, on the photos. So we, we tried to encourage that. I've, I see a lot of people doing that photos, but then I see a lot of the things that you would just see on Twitter or, or other networks. Um, you have some more flexibility since it's a, it's a blog. So like you can use Markdown, um, you know, add links and styling. So it goes a little beyond what you're kind of used to with just like plain text on Twitter, but, uh, there's no, there's no rule. It's like whatever people want to write about. Um, if there a lot of like, again, like photos are a good example, but there's a lot of, for, it's different for everybody. Right. And you might have some people that post one kind of thing to Twitter and then they use micro.blog as kind of an outlet for other stuff that maybe they feel like wouldn't like appeal to people that follow them on Twitter. And then of course we have a bunch of people that, uh, were just kind of fed up with Twitter and they wanted something completely new. And so for those people, they just post everything to micro.blog and they don't worry about whatever's on Twitter or Facebook. Well, one thing that's really fun about this is just following the change logs at micro.blog because uh, you're just prolific. I mean, it seems like you're always adding new features to it and it, it, it's fun seeing something in its infancy grow so quickly. And, um, and I, I would encourage listeners to go check out micro.blog. Maybe just sign up for your account name. You know, get your name at micro.blog because it, even if you're not sure what to do with it yet, the uh, there, there is so much flexibility in the platform that you may find a good use for it. Maybe just taking a trip and want to have a photo log and just share that link with certain people. You could do that. and uh, Or you could make the next great, you know, 
big blog if you wanted as well. <laughs> I, I think it's yeah. it's an interesting thing that you know it could be so small or so big. Yeah, and and it, it's really like when we talk about like who does it appeal to and like what do you want to use it for. I mean, I. I tried to touch on some of like, you know, you control your content and you have your own domain name and that sort of thing. And of course, you know, there's a lot of people that that appeals to, but there's another set of people that are again, kind of frustrated with existing social networks and they want a place that values having like a safe community, a place that will not tolerate, you know, hate and harassment in the timeline. And so that was also a big thing right at the beginning. So when we were doing the Kickstarter, um, I wrote about this a little bit and, uh, Gene McDonald, uh, and ended up joining as the community manager and trying to stay on top of this stuff really early on. So that as we do get bigger and we do scale up, we don't reinvent all the problems that other social networks have because, you know, like Twitter, like when it was getting off the ground, um, you know, they built something kind of interesting and it took off. But they didn't really know where it was going to go. And then what happens is you build a bunch of features and you just kind of you just go in like a million miles an hour. And then you wake up three or four years later and you realize you have no control over the platform and there's major problems that you can no longer fix. And I think that today's social networks are kind of in that position. And so we wanted to be day one. Think about this. Think about the community. Think about just the role of, uh, of a network like this and, uh, trying to stay on top of it. So that appeals to a lot of people too. Yeah. And I imagine that actually takes quite a bit of resources to keep it a, a clean, safe community for people. Yeah. I mean, we're lucky right now that like our community is amazing. Cause like when you think about, if you just walk up to someone on the street and say like, you know, where do you post on the internet? And most people would be like, no, oh, Twitter or Facebook or something like that. And you wouldn't be surprised if, if someone says, Oh, I post everything on micro.bug, you might say like, why is that? And again, like there's different reasons, but like, Across all those reasons, I think everybody that's joined micro.blog has this desire. They want things to be better, right? They want like an alternative, something that is thinking about these problems. And because they come to the platform wanting something better, that kind of shows through in the community. So like everybody has been great. Like we haven't had major problems, but at the same time, we want to be on top of it. We want to build tools. We want to think about curation so that inevitably when there are issues that pop up, you know, we're ready for them. We're not like surprised and have to panic. So at some point, uh, not only did you realize, you must have realized at some point, I'm not only just a developer anymore, now I'm a businessman. <laughs> right. So first of all, when did that hit you and, and how did you deal with it? So uh, I don't know if there was a moment that it hit me, but there's certainly, you know, to be successful and to do the things we want to do with blog, it has to be sustainable it has to be a real business because yeah the servers aren't gonna pay for themselves um and so you know we we've taken like a software as a subscription kind of model with it so you can join for free but you can also pay us for blog hosting and that's a real kind of tried and true like business formula like we're not the first ones to charge <laughs> for blog hosting there are you know multi-million dollar companies that have been quite successful at it so that's the business part of it. And it's been really fun to kind of think about, you know, how, how do we accommodate the different types of people that are joining the platform, make everybody happy and also offer something for the people that just want something really convenient where they just, they want to pay $5 a month and be done with it. They don't have to worry about anything. It just works. And so that, yeah, the business side has been really, really fun, fascinating, but of course it's a whole new challenge. 
So there's uh, there's probably not many people listening to the show that are making their own social media network, but <laughs> there are quite a people, <laughs> quite a few people listening that are running their own business. Uh, what are some of the tools uh, uh, Max Savvy Manton found to, to kind of make all this work? <laughs> so a lot of it is just kind of embracing the differences between what I'm used to, which is selling like one-off Mac software or iOS apps and the idea of like a subscription business. And so, you know, we use Stripe for credit card um, management and sub- managing, you know, subscription plans. Now is, is Stripe your back end, or is it like, I, you know, I'm talking about, you can link directly to Stripe on your website or just make it like your back end credit card processing. Yeah, more like the back end, I guess. So like we have, uh, you know, you don't ever see like the Stripe logo or the word Stripe or the domain name or anything like that. So in micro.blog, if you, you sign up and you say, oh, I want to create a blog, you enter your credit card number, and then we pass that off to Stripe to verify it and to manage the charge and the subscription. It's, it's a really good service. I, I mean, I had um, a different service provider years ago for my law practice, and I had some clients that were international. And getting paid by them was super difficult. And then I switched over to Stripe, and it's just solved now. Um, I think that's a, that's a great option. They've done great work. It's like I wouldn't recommend using anything else for anybody that wants to take money on the Internet. It's just fantastic. Uh, even from simple, like just want to like accept like a one off payment to like this more uh, complicated, like managing s- subscriptions and different plans. And so that gets us really far. And then we build web tools and um, and things like along with that and there's another service i use called bear metrics which like plugs into stripe and gives you the pretty charts and tries to like figure out like what's your growth and what's your you know how many people are canceling and and that sort of thing and that that helps a lot too kind of staying on top of potential problems in the business um as we're growing every month it's like sometimes you don't see the issues that might be lingering there because new people are always joining yeah now for for folks out there who are not web developers uh, how difficult was, would it be for them to integrate something like bare metrics into their credit card processing so uh, bare metrics it takes no coding or integration at all it'll just like authorize with stripe and do everything i don't know how much it makes sense if you're not doing subscription payments um because it's really geared more to tracking that might work not sure um but for like subscriptions it's kind of invaluable because yeah you can look at the growth of the business um you know and again like kind of keep an eye on some indicators of how things are going, like people canceling, like it's inevitable in a subscription business that some people will cancel. And it's just like tracking that the rate of cancellations and making sure that there's not a problem that's happening because you depend with a subscription business on every month, kind of being able to predict like, this is how much revenue is coming in. Um, cause there's so many things that have to be paid for like uh, running the servers like i said and um, and everything else and so if if there's anything that's kind of going off a cliff so to speak with uh, with uh, subscriptions you want to stay on top of that so that's when a tool like that is really useful it's always funny when you're starting a new business you've got this idea of what is important but then after six months there's like a whole different set of things that you realize are important that you didn't didn't even realize existed when you started the business 
Absolutely. And there's so many little tweaks to make. I mean, when we launched a Kickstarter people, like we really didn't have everything together, to be honest. I mean, we just had like the bare minimum to launch. And, you know, over the last six months, we've been able to, to add more things and even just things like sending email. Like I, I'm always resistant to like spam people because, you know, we've all joined those services and they're just like sending you email like every day or multiple times a day. It's like, what about this? What about this? And so we send hardly any emails from micro.blog. You know, we send one when you sign up, like welcome with some tips. And then we send one if you do a trial and it's going to expire, that kind of thing. But like, there's so many things like that, that you can tweak and we should do more, like we should probably send a little more email than we're sending, for example, um, or tweaking things like the page when they subscribe, making sure that it's encouraging and like has, you know, says the right things. So people are informed the page when people cancel is huge too. We don't want them to have to call us or email us to cancel, right? They should be able to cancel right on the website. But at the same time, we want to encourage them to stay customers as we think it could be really valuable for them. So tweaking all those little things actually has a huge impact on the business. And there's still a lot we need to do with that, but it's been really fun to kind of like tweak those knobs kind of, and like see if it has an impact. Yeah. And and you're going to learn more as you go on. (laughs) So, so how are you getting like, uh, are you doing any like mass mailing stuff? No, no. We're d- the only thing that we're doing is I, I try to email the, the Kickstarter backers from time to time. And um, usually ha- maybe once every month or every two months, give them an update on how things are going. Um, but we haven't done any like mailings besides that. And, and besides like when you sign up, you know, getting a, getting an email to inform you about, you know, something that happened. Um, mostly it's word of mouth, um, people that join the service and they fall in love with it. And then they tell five people like, you should try this out because I want to, you know, like I want, you know, you to be on the service as well so that I can kind of uh, keep up with what you're doing. So that mostly it's been word of mouth and just kind of growing from there. Any other important tools to getting this thing rolling? I mean, a lot of just web development stuff. So, you know, I, I use BB edit all the time for, uh, working on code for the server. It's all written in Ruby. And, um, so a lot of, <laughs> as we record this, BB edit just released their 12.1 update. And, uh, ah. I, I always, I always go and read the release notes. I mean, Rich and those guys are super smart. Sometimes they're funny and they added a feature now that BB edit can open, 1.5 gigabyte text files. <laughs> and I just had to sit here and laugh. I'm like, who has a 1.5 gigabyte text file? But of course, whoever it is, they use BB edit, right? Mm-hmm. And they submitted a bug report and then <laughs> BB edit. Yeah. I can imagine like some crazy database export or like spreadsheet. That's just yeah. a, just a disaster spreadsheet. No, I, I'm could, sure there's I a case know. for it, but it just made me laugh. You know? Yeah, that is funny. <laughs> I don't have anything quite that that uh, <laughs> that large, but um, I do appreciate it. I've tried other text editors over the years, and I always come back to BBA. It just it's rock solid. It, it would work with a huge file like that, even if I don't have them very often. And uh, yeah, I always kind of come back to it. Just it's always there. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Enter code MPU at checkout and get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. 
Maybe you want to create an online store. Maybe you want to create a portfolio. Maybe you want to create a blog. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that will let you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has you covered. You have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed, ready for you to show off your great ideas. At this point, I probably have about a half a dozen Squarespace websites that I've created for myself, for my business, for various organizations that I'm a member of. And I can tell you, I don't look anywhere else when it comes time to design a website or create it for someone. It is so easy to create a Squarespace website, to get it up and running, to make it look good with very little effort. And then best of all, you can just hand it off to somebody for management because it's pretty easy to show them how to quickly and easily maintain their Squarespace website. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going over to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for Mac Power users. We thank Squarespace for their support. Squarespace, make your next move. Make your next website. Matt, and how big is your team? Well, it's basically me and Gene, and the that's it. That's I, I do. I do. A, you know, I built the service, and I um, continue to work on it. I built the Mac app and the iOS app, and you know, it's uh, it's kind of a little too much just for me as like a one person. <laughs> development team it truly is your baby that's what we've got yeah that's it's it's i'm really passionate about the project obviously it's uh it's resonated enough that it's all i want to be working on for you know it's like i before i quit my job i i worked at my previous job my day job for like 14 years which is a long time i had a great boss worked with great people but even like a year into that job i knew like i'm not going to be there the rest of my life. But with this, I could work on this for 40 years. You know, I, this is really important <laughs> for me to work on. And I feel like, again, it's kind of like enough people have fallen in love with it and participate in the community that don't want to let them down, want to do the best job we can with it. So um, there's a lot to do. Eventually, I hope we'll have a bigger team that can handle more coding, more sysadmin, more, you know, creation and other aspects and customer support. But for now, uh, it's a tiny team. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's just early days. You just started really. And, um, and this is the time to kind of like, hopefully you'll look back on these days with, with fond memories as the thing grows. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. And, um, I already have some fond memories just in the last uh, six months, but yeah, it's, it's really fun to launch something new like this and see it improve quickly. So, you know, I just submitted a new version of the iOS app to Apple this morning as we're recording and, you know, the nice thing about a small team of just me is the only, you know, person working on the iPhone app all the time is um, I can iterate really quickly. I, when something's ready, I can just release it. I don't need a meeting or, you know, committee to, to kind of go through it. Um, but yeah, but the downside, of course, is that like there's only so much I can do in a, in a 24 hour <laughs> period. But it's, it is fun to look at the progress and see where we were six months ago and see where we are today. And it's just way better right way so much significantly better than it than it was even just a short time ago well well we're probably straying into free agents territory here but let me just ask you one question what do you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of the process of starting micro.blog oh there's so much um 
That's a great question. I think uh, I'm trying to think if I could, you know, one of those kind of, could you go back in time and tell your, tell your six month, you know, previous self, I'm trying to think if there's one thing I'd go back. I, I think I would probably like, if I had to give myself advice from a year ago, I'd probably say like, you know, don't worry, you're, you're kind of on the right track. <laughs> like, like just kind of stay the course. Cause like one of the things that we've tried to do is be really deliberate with everything. So like, we're not just like cloning Twitter. We're not just copying every feature. We're not just kind of scrambling. We're trying to be thoughtful because all these kind of features that we build have an impact on the community, have an impact on how people interact with the platform. And when you start out, you're not sure if that's going to work. And I think we're at the point now where I I can see it does work and people like it. And so I I think it's, it's really difficult when you're just starting to know whether it's, it's going to like pan out or whether you're going to have to change course. I feel like if everybody gave themselves just a little bit of extra affirmation, life would be a lot easier. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And usually merited, honestly, (laughs) uh, we're hard on ourselves. Everybody (laughs) don't do that. If you're listening, um, uh, Manson, something you do that I'm, you told me about it as we we're getting ready for the show and, and we've got it here in the outline and I'm still scratching my head about it. So you use a combination of mail.app and Evernote for your email archive. And I, I just need you to explain it to me because I don't, I don't understand. I feel like this, yeah, this is now a pattern on the, the show where I, I, all about these really obscure ways I, I I organize my notes and photos and email. You know, I use mail.app and I have had issues in the past where I've lost email archives. And I think at some point in the last couple of years, I reached a point where I knew, I no longer trusted like the email storage and I wanted like a copy somewhere else. So let's back up for a minute, just to make sure people understand. So you are not necessarily keeping all of your mail in the IMAP server. You're, you're archiving it and storing it locally on your machine. Is that right? Yeah, I think most of it is on IMAP too, but I kind of just don't want to depend on it. Maybe I guess is the way to, to way to put it. So it's not a, it's not a privacy thing. It's, it's a backup thing. It's a totally a backup thing. Just be able to find email. I've I've lost like large chunks of email in the past, like going back really really far, that I wish I had now. And so, yeah, a handful of years ago, I decided I want to move all my email into something that isn't directly related to email, something that can like last for a really long time that I can search. That's kind of syncs with the cloud. Something that I can um, just kind of have like the most important email on. And what I came up with was. Putting every putting not everything in Evernote, but putting a lot of things in Evernote, and so it's kind of like the most important email. Um, so I have like a little keyboard shortcut that I trigger a, an Apple script with uh, Fast Scripts um, from Daniel Jalka at Red Sweater Software, his little script menu app, and. Uh, so anytime I have an email that's remotely interesting, I just like hit the little keyboard shortcut and it files it away in Evernote, and then I have all that stuff in there. So it's not totally automatic. It's not all email because of course we all get a bunch of email that we don't really ever need to look at it ever again because half of it's spam or or otherwise just kind of not useful junk mail. But like anything that like reaches a threshold where it's like this could possibly be looked at sometime in the future, even if it's like a 1% chance I filed away. And so then now I have this archive of like kind of like any email that I might need to actually reference in the future. 
So it's a really kind of, it's kind of a weird system. I don't know if a lot of people do this. Um, although when I was writing the little Apple script, I did find other people that were using Evernote to archive email. Um, but so far it's worked really well for me and, uh, it kind of like gets that stuff out of mail. I've just had, I don't know, mail to me has been kind of hit or miss with email search, especially spotlight. Um, especially if like running, running along hard drive space and that kind of thing, like email search starts to like break down for me and not work reliably. So I wanted something outside of mail.app that just like always works. And so that's what I've got. Okay. So first of all, I, I, I think I would agree with you this time. I don't think a lot of people do this, but it makes more sense to me after you explain it. So, so you're not sending all your email to Evernote. You're just sending the choice cuts, you know, the ones that are things that you may want to look at again. Right. And I don't put a lot of thought into it. Like I said, if it's just, if there's a chance that I'll look at it again, if I filed away and it's so fast, it doesn't even like, you know, I've, I have command shift S like sends it to Evernote. So it's like, it's super fast. It does. I don't really have to think about it. I don't even, I don't even realize I'm doing it. I just like hit the keyboard shortcut and it, it files it away. I, I, I'm like you, I have keyboard shortcuts in mail that I don't even think about. I'm not even sure what they do at this point. My fingers just take <laughs> care of it, but, but they work, you know, it's, it's gone to the low level processor in my brain, I guess. But the, uh, but does that, does that limit your ability to process email on iOS? Yeah. So that's a great question. I, probably miss some email because of this workflow. This workflow is not like super compatible with iOS. If there's something on iOS that I absolutely don't want to forget to file away, um, Evernote has a special email address that you can forward things to. And so on iOS, if there's something that I absolutely have to file away and for some reason right away, I just forward it to that address and then it files it away in Evernote for me. So, but yeah, it's not quite as convenient on iOS because you can't hook into this kind of thing with like keyboard shortcuts and scripts. As I say, years ago, uh, Apple Mail was kind of bad about like losing stuff and also just getting slow in search. And if the database got too big, things got really clunky. I, I remember in the early Mac Power User shows, we had lots of apps we would recommend to offload email and, and search it in a separate database. But honestly, I've not had any trouble with Apple Mail and that type of issue in a long time. I was just curious, Katie, are you experiencing that at all with Apple Mail? No, I'm I'm not. And occasionally I'll have spotlight issues, but that tends to be resolved by, you know, rebuilding the spotlight index or it's just not rebuilt yet. But I, I haven't had uh, search has been spot on for me in Apple Mail recently. But but I do something similar to Matt in, in the sense of like with the legal cases I work on, sometimes emails come in that may be evidence in the case someday or something. In those cases, I run a I run a script and, and print it out as a PDF to save to the file. I don't put it in Evernote. I actually put it on a on Dropbox or iCloud or wherever the storage system is. So I, I, I see where you're coming from. It just sounds like you're doing a lot more than I do with that script. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's not just every once in a while. It's every day stuff is being filed away. And how often do you need to go into Evernote to to tra- to track something down? Well, it's not that often, but I just kind of feel better that it's all there. <laughs> this is kind of similar to my photo strategy, I guess. And yeah, I get it. I get maybe it. the the pattern here, I guess, is like, I, I mean, some of this I built like a couple of years ago. I'm using for a long time, and and like y'all said, like mail is better than it was even a year ago or two years ago, but like sometimes, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you get these patterns and these kind of workflows. And sometimes it's like kind of hard to shake it, even when the software improves. And so I'm still, I'm still pretty happy with 
the the kind of workflow I have for this. I feel like, you know, when uh, you have something in your life and you're not entirely happy with it, and then you go and look at other options and they're all like worse, and then all of a sudden you <laughs> like that thing better. That, that's kind of, a, I've had kind of an enlightenment with Apple Mail as I keep trying all these iOS mail alternatives. And, you know, they do things like say they sent the email and then they didn't send the email or, you know, they, they, they blow it on such a fundamental level that all of a sudden Apple Mail, you know, looks a lot better to me. <laughs> right. I kind of go through that same thing every once in a while. Like, I think maybe a year ago I tried Airmail um, for just kind of like, it kind of made the rounds trying different apps, but I can't do that all the time because I have other work to do and like but every couple of years it's neat to like kind of dip your toes into other apps and see has the landscape changed significantly and if not i poke my head back out and uh, move on yeah i kind of do that for a living in some ways but i uh, <laughs> but but the, you know i i still can't find a reliable alternative to mail dot app on on ios uh katie do you do much mail archiving I don't. Um, I, again, like you, if it's for a specific thing that I think this particular message may need, be pertinent, I'll, I'll export it to a PDF. But, uh, well, I should say I, I have an archive folder that I archive all my messages in, much much like you do. But I don't archive them off to my hard drive, other than occasionally saving as a as a PDF. Um, I, yeah, sometimes I, I wonder where I, I should. I, I'm considering, you know, maybe changing. I, I had an issue a couple of years ago when I when I moved from one firm to a, a new firm and I needed to bring a year's worth of email with me, you know, figuring out how to do that, you know, exporting email and then and then reimporting it to a, a new account, which can can sometimes be difficult and figuring out how to archive and, and save all that because it's not always as easy as it should be. But I no, I don't archive for backup. That's kind of exactly what I ran into as well. It's like I would switch mail servers or something, and then you have this kind of chore of like, how do you move everything to like the new IMAP server, or like do you archive it somewhere else? And so my thinking is like, I'm just going to like sidestep the issue and just like things that are really important, I'm going to have stored independently of the mail server. But it seems like apps should be better. Like maybe tools have improved still uh, since it's since then too but um seems like apps should be better at handling this kind of thing because i think it's a common thing like people want to keep all their mail uh, i think a lot of people do and of course if you've been using gmail for 15 years then that's your solution but i'm not and i've never been a gmail kind of person so right now i used uh fast mail which i absolutely love and uh, but again, it's like if you switch mail servers, you run into this issue of like where your archives are. Google has a um, a takeout service where you can you can export everything. I think it's in the inbox format that it will let you take out, and then that's you can import that to something else. Um, but but not everything is so easy. Well, good on them for that. I mean, I wish everybody did that. I mean, that makes so much sense, especially for Google, where the where the you know their flavor of IMAP is is quite different than you know, vanilla IMAP. So they should have something like that, but I'm, I'm glad that they, you know, they, they've taken the steps to make that possible. Yeah. I was going to ask you, Manton, how else are you using, um, uh, Evernote? Because it sounds like you're keeping your note notes in Ulysses, not necessarily in Evernote. You're archiving email to Evernote. Are, are you using Evernote for anything else? Actually, no, I only use Evernote for mail archives now. It's a little strange, but yeah, I like, I really, really like having my notes in Dropbox. 
because they're just text files and I can sync them between platforms. It's completely open. So I can, I can use Ulysses, Ulysses one day. I can use BB edit if I want to another day I can use ByWord, some, you know, completely different app. So I really like my notes in Dropbox. So I, of course I've tried using Evernote for notes and I did for a little while, but I, I quickly stopped that. And so Evernote is purely email now. And, uh, I pay for like the Evernote premium or whatever. Cause like I need like, I don't know what it, I can't remember what I need now. I think the email feature and more storage and, and, and that sort of thing. But, but that's, that's its whole role uh, is the email. Well, are you, do you have any concerns about trusting Evernote, you know, as the repository for this stuff? I mean, do you like, are you concerned about them going away at some point? I think they're, okay. I think they're okay. I mean, it's certainly a concern. Any of these companies, you never know. Like there's no guarantee that they're going to last forever. And we've seen some really high profile companies that no one thought could fail, uh, either go under or get sold. I think Evernote's a pretty good foundation, even though they've had like a couple of missteps here and there. I'm not too worried about it. And I feel like if there was a major problem, I'd have enough notice that I could export everything out. So, and, and that's another reason I did pick Evernote is it's a pretty established big company that I feel like is here to stay for a while. I wouldn't put it in like the top couple companies that I think will last for, you know, 20 or 30 years necessarily, but I do think they're around for a while. Yeah. And, and also they, they have got a lot better about exporting. So if you had to get it out of there, you probably could. This week, the Mac Power Users is brought to you by the Omni Group, makers of some of the best productivity software for the Mac, the iPad, and the iPhone. One of the things I love about the Omni Group is that they just don't stop. Recently, Ken Case, the president of the Omni Group, posted a blog post explaining what they're going to be doing in 2018. And it looks like we're going to have some great treats from the Omni Group this year. Omni Graffle and Omni Plan are both getting updates. And we're also going to get Omni Outliner 3 for iOS. I'm really looking forward to this update. The Omni Outliner version 3 for Mac is great, and I can't wait to get some of those features on iOS as well. They also explained in their blog post that anyone who purchased Omni Outliner 2 within the last year will get a free upgrade to the Pro Edition when it ships. The big news is, however, OmniFocus 3 for both iOS and Mac are on their way. This new version of OmniFocus is going to be great. They're adding tags to the application so you can have multiple contexts applied to every single task. With this system in place, you'll be able to have context for locations, for people, and even your energy level all applied to the same task. The Omni Group wanted to do this in a way that doesn't overwhelm you and allows you also to spend your time performing your tasks instead of managing your task list. From what I've seen, they're going to accomplish this, so we've got a lot to look forward to. The new version is also going to have additional features like manual sorting, flexible scheduling, and flexible notifications, so you can have OmniFocus pester you as much or as little as you want. The new version of OmniFocus is also going to get a bit of a design refresh, and I tell you, I just can't wait to see this application when it comes out. If you're interested, I'm going to put a link in the show notes where you can read the post and even sign up for the OmniFocus 3 test flight, so you can be testing it out if that's your thing. They also announced that they're going to have a version of OmniFocus for the web, so if you're sitting at a PC at work, you can still access your OmniFocus data. It's going to be an exciting year out of the Omni Group. Go to their website, download some of their trial software just to see how much it can help you, and let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. 
Man, every time uh, we have someone on the show like you, uh, a Mac hand and a person exploring iOS, I always like to hear what some of your favorite apps are. Uh, you know, some of the listeners might might want to hear something new or even just the old stuff that you use that, that everybody needs. Yeah, so I, I use a bunch of old stuff that everybody needs and has probably heard of it. We already talked about BB Edit, trusted that app forever, and I use it a lot. Uh, I use OmniFocus. I've been using that for a while. I, I kind of resisted switching to OmniFocus uh, for a while because it seemed like too much for like what I needed. But I really, when I figured out that you could kind of customize it so much and I could remove a lot of the features that I don't need, that it really started to work well for me. And so I've been using that for a few years and really like it. Yeah, Omni's Omni sponsoring this episode. So this is editorial. This is editorial. I mean, just for everybody out there, but uh, it's kind of like micro.blog, you know, OmniFocus can be big or it can be little, you know, you just got to figure out the way you want to use it. Yep. And then like, there's a couple of new fun little apps that I've been, I've been using one like for development is called paw. Um, and I use it a lot when like building web services and needing to test servers. And it's like, it's a way, it's a really well-designed app where you can set up like kind of um, network connections where you can like hit a server and like send form data or JSON or parameters and that sort of thing. It's super flexible and it's great when doing any kind of web development. Uh, Really enjoyed that app. Um, A little fun app that I've been playing with is called rocket which allows you to like insert little emoji in text boxes on your on your mac so kind of slack style you hit colon and you type uh, an emoji keyword and inserts it you know it's funny because this app has been in my like it's been like orbiting me for like months i i just hear about it i know friends that have it I'll, i'll look over somebody's shoulder and see them using it but i uh I set up all my emoji with text expander a long time ago where it just, I have semicolon, I made shortcuts. So if I want to put emoji into something, then I can to Katie's chagrin, right? So, because <laughs> 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 I'm sitting at my Mac and I'm sending her, I'm sending her stuff all the time. I'm like, you, you know, the, the, the sign for uh, the emoji for the uh, call me, you know, it looks like kind of a phone. It's the pinky and the thumb out. You know, I'm talking about there's an emoji that looks like, I guess the, the description of it is call me, but to me, it looks like hang loose, right? <laughs> yeah. So I'm always throwing hang loose as a Katie, and I don't know if she thinks she's supposed to call me or if she's happy that I'm telling her to hang loose. I'm not sure. I just ignore them. I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> well, 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 I fire them off with semicolon yeah, HL, you know, hang loose, right? <laughs> and uh, But now I, I'm going to download Rocket because I, I just got to see what this app everybody's using this app on the Mac and I do like to send a lot of emoji. So if I can increase my emoji production to Katie, it'll be worth it. And it's free. I just realized it's free too. So look at that. I'm so excited about this app. I cannot even tell you. <laughs> I think they have a way to upgrade it to get some new, new features. But yeah, it's, it's free to download and use. And I find similar. I'm using emoji more and more. I think I was really resistant a handful of years ago. And I've been using it so much like in blog, we have like all the features that are like based on emoji now. So like, like, cause we noticed a lot of people doing things like you type in a, a short little post and then you add, um, like a little emoji at the end, like a book emoji, if it's, you're writing about a book or a novel you're reading or something like that. And so we collect all those together and like a, a way to discover new users and discover posts that people are doing. You can like tap on the, the book emoji and the discover pane and see all these little posts that are about emoji. So 
I've kind of, yeah, I've kind of like really embraced emoji more, much more than I expected. Yeah. And I just realized rocket lets me send gifts too. So I can send gifts from my Mac. Super easy. Katie, Katie's going to love this. I have no further comment. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now I just got to find the right gifts for Katie. So, so gang, if, if you want to help me find the right gifts for Katie, just tweet them at Katie and, and we'll see how that goes. I'm deleting Twitter. I'm getting on micro.blog. So, no. <laughs> all right. What, what 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 do you have that's not emoji related for for apps? Uh, Whatever you're using these days, yeah. Katie just wants to change the subject desperately right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. So I use Acorn a lot. Still, I've been using that since probably the beginning. I don't think I've opened Photoshop and. In years, isn't it amazing how we all spent hundreds and hundreds of dollars on on Photoshop years ago, and now we, we've got these apps that cost tens of dollars that are yeah, that's fine. Yeah, and in some cases even better, like more lightweight, faster, take more advantage of you know features and are updated more often. And yeah, so I, I'm a big fan of Acorn from Flying Meat. I I don't do like graphic design stuff that much, but like I I'm always in acorn cropping things changing things and then every once in a while i need to like create a little icon or something um for like micro.blog or something like that and um i will use acorn for that a little vector art just some you know scan or something that i was working on so uh, i use that quite a bit those kind of like bb edit acorn those kind of apps like are always uh launched in my doc so, Matt, you've had a busy few years. You you quit your job. You started a social media network and started your own business. Uh, what's next to the extent you can say for micro.blog? Really, I think just continuing uh, with what we're doing. You know, we're growing a little bit uh, every day as people find out about the service and join. And that kind of the feedback that we get from the community is that we're on the right track, like, the the goals, the kind of the the ideas, the things we're exploring in the platform, and the things that we've talked about where we want to be. Like if it, people, it's resonated enough that people like it, and we know that we just need to like keep moving forward with it. And so it's like we talked about. It's like it's amazing when you look back, you know, how much you can accomplish in like six months or a year. So I don't know exactly where we'll be in six months or a year from now, but. It's, we kind of have the path laid out. It's just a matter of actually doing all the work, you know, building all the new versions of the Mac app and the iPhone app and building out things on the platform and making things faster and more robust and all that sort of thing. Well, I can't wait to have you back in three or four years when you talk about how successful it is and all the things that you've done with this uh, with this really great idea you had. And I would encourage everybody listening, we'll put a link in the show notes to micro.blog. Go check it out. And, um, you know, there's probably some use you may have for this service, so it's worth checking out. And um, and if, if you want to learn more about Manton, I would uh, suggest probably where are the best places to find you? So... Probably, well, micro.blog is the best place uh, at Manton. I was going to say, of course, micro.blog, right. (laughs) And, um, you know, the other best place is my blog. It's manton.org. That's, uh, I post every day, you know, all my little microblog posts go to my blog. And also I post, uh, you know, longer essays or different things about, you know, things I'm working on or or thoughts about Apple. uh, I post there as well. All right, everybody go check that out. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us. 
um, on relay FM dot, I'm sorry, slash MPU. This is episode four, one, seven, crazy, crazy. So you can get uh, show notes there if you don't already have them in your podcast uh, listening app of choice. Uh, we're on uh, Twitter. Matt, and close your ears for this part. We're, we're on Twitter. <laughs> we are at Mac Power Users. Katie's at Katie Floyd, and I am at Max Barkey. I was going to thank our advertisers for this episode: uh, Fujitsu, One Password, Squarespace, and Omni Group. And don't forget to grab your tickets for the meetup in Chicago on March seventh. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. And we look forward to seeing you all there. And then, David, I'll talk to you next week. Yeah.